0: Well, good morning. Colossians chapter 1 is where we are this morning, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to settle down on verse 24 and uh, unpack one of the most baffling and controversial verses. In the entire Bible. This verse that we're covering today is one of the reasons why I think it's important that we as a church, that I as a young preacher preach through books of the Bible most of the time instead of cherry picking and just coming up with things to talk about to you from a variety of topics because I would not in and of myself choose to settle down on this verse, because it's hard, and it's difficult, and it's it's a massive truth. But we operate on a premise here, and that premise is the truth of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15, 16, and 17, that says that the Word of God is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, and training, and reproof, and correction, and that it equips us, and it makes us into people that are useful for God. So this is a massive truth today. I also want to say before we begin that uh, if you are relatively new to Christianity or you're discovering Christianity or you're rather unfamiliar with the Bible, I want you to know that I'm really glad that you're here. And this is, I want to dispel any myth that the enemy may whisper to you during this day that you are somehow not able to understand this because there's a lot of Bible and it's a difficult truth. That's not true. This is a complex and difficult and weighty truth, but it is for you. And I'm going to hopefully speak. In fact, I hope every Sunday that I preach to in a way that whether you're eight years old or whether you're 80 years old, you can understand and grab this and apply it to your life. Likewise, if you've been a Christian for a long time, and maybe you are familiar with this truth, or you have touched on these issues, our goal today is not just to establish a theology or a teaching or a principle from the Scriptures. Truth in and of itself was never meant to terminate on itself just to be a group of facts that we agree with. But truth or theology should lead us to doxology, which is worship. And so the whole aim of today is that we would see and savor Jesus more clearly and then worship him more robustly and serve him more fervently. So if you have a Bible open to Colossians chapter one, we're going to go through a lot of scriptures today. All of these notes will be on the website by tomorrow afternoon or at the very latest early in the week. And so if you want to just sort of sit and jot down notes as you are able, then you can be released from the pressure to try and write everything down. So um, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray and ask God to help me. I know we've prayed several times already, but let me pray and ask God to help me and you. And then let me read, and then let's get right to it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, as Will mentioned earlier, for the beautiful weather, for the changing of seasons, for your goodness to us in ways that are beyond our comprehension. You are always doing millions of things when we only see two or three of them. And so we thank you for breath and life and walls and air conditioning and seats And sound systems and Bibles and cars and parking lots and breakfast and lunch and everything that you give us. Lord, today this truth is massive and it's huge. I feel very inadequate to even think about these issues, let alone try and communicate them in a way that is understandable for these people that I love very much. I'm also painfully aware of my immaturity, my lack of experience, my limited knowledge of the scriptures, and my self absorption and my hypocrisy. So, would you please, in your grace, overcome those things? And if there's anything that I say today, because this is a massive truth, and Sometimes my words are not as precise as they should be. Would you please give me the kind, kind grace and these hearers that I love very much, the kind grace and wisdom and discernment that if there's anything that I say today that is not in accord with your eternal truth, would you let it fall to the ground? But if it is in accord with your wisdom from your scriptures, would it, stick fast to our hearts and our spirits, and would you give illumination by your Holy Spirit? Lord, we're not just dealing with human intellect here today, we, we are leaning heavily on the power of the Holy Spirit that fills this room and your children to understand, so would you do now what we cannot do on our own? Would you please help me not to be a peddler of God's Word, but as a man commissioned By God, would you help me to speak in Christ? Pray these things today in the mighty name of our good, gracious, creator, King, Jesus. Amen. All right, Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, just by way of background, reminding you that the whole point of the letter of Colossians is that Paul, when he was in Ephesus in the book of Acts, Preached the gospel in the city of Ephesus, and there was a great upheaval in that city. There was a great change in the climate. The local economy was affected. People were into idolatry and all sorts of strange Greek gods and worship. And when Paul began to preach the gospel there, literally the economy of the town, the, the whole societal framework of the town turned upside down. The gospel has a way of turning things upside down. And as he was preaching at Ephesus for a few years... A young man was there, and his name was Epaphras. He was a native of Colossae, and he heard the gospel, received the gospel, and then took the gospel back at some point to his home city of Colossae and planted this church that we know of now as the Colossian church. It went for several years, and then according to Epaphras and his word back to Paul, the Colossian church, which started well, which was full of faith and love, began to veer off into some dangerous teaching that Paul became aware of through his ministry associate Epaphras. And Epaphras came back and told Paul and said, I know you've never met this hometown of mine or my people, but they're starting to believe these things. And it's hard to pin down exactly what the error was, but it seems like from the letter of Colossians that the error in the Colossian church was that some sort of super spiritual guru had come into the church And he was beginning to teach them things along the lines of that, yes, Jesus is good and you should accept Jesus, but you need to add to Jesus some other thing, whether it be some super higher spiritual knowledge or whether it be some um, religious tradition, whether it be circumcision or some dietary law. And so he was sort of uh, teaching the people, whoever this unidentified person was or group of teachers that that. All of the power of God and the fullness of the gospel did not completely reside in Jesus, but you needed Jesus plus something else in order to attain all that God had for you. And Paul came to refute that message. And that's the context of Colossians and what we've been going through in the first chapter. And now he deals with this issue of suffering. So let me read in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24 through the end of the chapter, although we'll settle down in verse 24. Listen to these words. They're... They're enormous. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Let's go back up to verse 24. And let me read it again because this is the verse that we are going to confine our attention to this morning. Verse 24 again says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up... What is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. I'm going to ask and hopefully answer three questions today. The first question is, what does Paul mean when he says that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? What does that mean? The second question that I want to ask today is that... How is God glorified in suffering? And then the third question that we'll end on is, how then should we pray for ourselves and one another and others when we are undergoing suffering and trials? There's three mindsets that everybody falls into, whether you realize you fall into this mindset or not. There are three ways to view God's relationship with suffering. And by suffering, let me say that I mean... Basically, every trial and hardship. In this particular instance, Paul is talking about his physical, seemingly physical, fleshly suffering, whether it be, um, some illness or his thorn in the flesh that we'll talk about in a little bit, or whether it be some outside circumstance of persecution. But suffering, in this case that Paul is talking about, I think applies the principles that we're going to talk about today, I believe applies to all suffering, whether that is suffering from some external circumstance, whether it is the persecution that we endure as Christians, whether it be something that may be a bad decision that we have made that has got us into a situation, all suffering, trial, physical sickness, uh, societal circumstance, relationship difficulty, suffering is a huge category. And so there is then three categories of from which we can draw and and view God's relationship with suffering the first is that God is vindictive and this is the way a lot of the world views it subconsciously it's like you know god is going to get you for what you did we all even many christians who love jesus and are going to heaven sort of subconsciously operate on this this premise that you know if i have a bad day that uh, later on in that day, you know, I'm going to have something bad happen to me because, because I did something bad. That is That is karma. That's not biblical. Now, certainly there are consequences for our actions, but God is a God of grace. And if God gave us you know, tit for tat, everything that we did, if we put all of our little bad deeds in a pile and God was to tic-tac-doe it and give us what we deserve for every good thing, we would, none of us, friends, would stand a chance. So although there are consequences and although there are laws that God has set up to govern the way things work in the universe, God is not a vindictive, punishing God. That's karma. That's not Bible. Secondly, There is the notion that God is somehow limited. That God is in this cosmic battle with the forces of evil. Think Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. And that we kind of have to wait until the sixth episode to see who finally wins. And sometimes if God's people pray enough and do enough good things and fast enough, And certainly prayer is a vital part of it, and God uses prayer, and we're going to talk about it at the end. But sometimes God wins, and sometimes God loses, depending on who is more powerful in that circumstance. That is not biblical. That is the mistaken notion of a worldview that is called dualism. Meaning that there's these dual powers that are basically equal, and depending on who has the ball or who has the better quarterback at the time, or more faith or less faith, Wins. That's not biblical. That's dualism. And the third category, which I believe is utterly biblical, is that God is sovereign. The problem with this and the reason why it's difficult for us to grasp is because there's a tremendous amount of mystery involved in this particular view. The Bible says in First Corinthians 13 that we see through a mirror or a glass dimly. There are just some things that we do not know at this point in our existence, and one of them is how God can be sovereign and providentially in control of all things and somehow work all things together for the good of his people and his glory. How can God be in control of everything and still be good? That, from this perspective of our life, is a mystery which we cannot fully answer, but it's biblical. And so we're operating off of this third world view that God is sovereign. So let's get to question number one. What does it mean that God, what does it mean, what does Paul mean when he says that in his suffering he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Now this is a, let me step back before I answer this question and say, this is a perfect example of a scripture that if you read it in isolation, you could come up with some pretty goofy and incorrect theology because let's just take this verse in a vacuum. Let's let's just take this verse as the only verse that we're dealing with right now. And if this was the only verse that talked about Christ's suffering and Christ's afflictions, we could probably deduce that there's something lacking in what Christ did on the cross. Because it clearly says here, he says that I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. But this is a perfect example is that when you are interpreting the Bible or you're reading the Bible, you have to read it in a greater context than just individual verses. And so when you're reading a difficult verse like this that makes you scratch your head and say, wait a minute, I know that it, it, it did... did Is the cross insufficient? Is what Jesus did for us insufficient? Does something need to be added to it? Like, do I need to suffer a little bit more in order to make Jesus' suffering complete? That can't be so. And so what you have to do is expand that verse with concentric circles. You have to think about the... The paragraph that it's in, then the chapter of the Bible that it's in, then the book of the Bible that it's in, then the whole New Testament and the whole Old Testament and the whole Bible as a whole. And within that very chapter, we find that that verse can't be true if we take it just in isolation, meaning that Christ is somehow lacking, that that truth can't be true from that verse because in that very same chapter, It says something different from that mistaken, isolated view of this passage. For example, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, He has delivered us, past tense, it's over. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. There's nothing lacking. It's happened. It's done. Just a couple verses up before verse 24, Paul says in verse 19 and 20, he says, For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. And then he says in uh, verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He's done it. It's past tense. Christ's work on the cross is sufficient. And that's just within that same chapter. There is a context of truth that tells you that what Paul is saying there means something other than what it appears to say Individually, is a verse. Are you tracking with me? Give me a north south. Anybody with me? All right. And just to settle it, and we could spend all day just unpacking the sufficiency and the completeness of Christ's work on the cross, but just to settle it outside of Colossians, Hebrews 10, verse 14 says that he has perfected for all time those who are being made holy or being sanctified. So Christ's work on the cross is sufficient what he did on the cross saves nothing needs to be added to it by grace alone we are saved through faith in christ and so paul cannot be saying that he needed to go through some suffering or we need to do some work in order to make christ's affliction effective so what does he mean what i think paul is saying here is that christ's afflictions are lacking in the sense that the infinite value of what Jesus did on the cross for all mankind is not, listen to me carefully now, is not yet known and treasured throughout the whole world. In other words, his suffering on the cross is still hidden to many people. They have not yet heard, they have not had the gospel proclaimed, they have not yet seen and savored and either embraced or rejected the suffering king of all creation on the cross. And so what Paul is saying here is that it is God's intention to reveal the mystery and the power of Christ's affliction for the sake of human sin by advancing the proclamation of the gospel through his people, in this case Paul and us, by our suffering by the way we endure a broken world that through us the gospel which is complete on the cross is then communicated and the only thing that lacks is the preaching of the gospel that continues throughout all the ages here's why i think that interpretation is true just one book over in philippians chapter 2 If you have your Bible, you can flip over there to Philippians chapter 2. Paul is talking about Epaphroditus, not our Epaphras from Colossians, but another guy with an even cooler name, Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus was Paul's ministry associate, and he was a representative between Paul and the Philippian church. And Paul, at this particular juncture of his ministry, is towards the end of his ministry when he's writing to the Philippian church, and he is in prison, in kind of halfway house-type prison, in house arrest in Rome. And in the way the Roman prisons did their deal, it wasn't a taxpayer, it wasn't like federally funded or state-funded prisons like it is in our day. If you were in prison, you not only had to be in prison, you also had to raise your funds to stay in prison. And so the Philippian church was gathering, think about that, that would be terrible, by the way, get put in San Quentin, and then you got to write home for money for food in San Quentin. Might not be a bad thing for us to do, but anyway, Paul has written to the Philippian church. He has this wonderful relationship with them because he planted that church, and they have taken up a love offering, a financial love offering, and they have sent it with Epaphroditus to Paul so that he could buy food. And Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 2, he says, let me start reading in verse 25. I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. So he's saying, I'm sending him back to you. He was your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Verse 27, indeed he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Listen, this is the important part now. Verse 28. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Verse 30, listen. For he nearly died for the work of Christ. This is going to sound familiar. Risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Almost the same phrase that we read in Colossians, remember, about how Christ's afflictions were lacking. And so what Paul is saying is, is that Epaphroditus became your messenger. He became the carrier of your complete offering for me. So your offering was collected in Macedonia or Philippi, and it was complete. It was sufficient. It had all that needed it it needed to have in order to supply my need, but it had to be carried to me. And the carrier, the one who completed, the only thing that was lacking in your offering, the fact that it needed to be carried to me, was this guy named Epaphroditus. And that's the same logic that Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Not that what happened on the cross was incomplete. Just like the Philippian offering, it was complete. It was all that Paul needed for his sustenance. But he needed Epaphroditus to carry it to him. Christ's sacrifice on the cross is complete. And now what Paul is saying is, is that God in His sovereign providence has intended for His people now... To not because Christ is incomplete in any way, but now to carry the message of the complete offering of Jesus on the cross through the ages. How? Through suffering and affliction. So that brings us to question number two. How does suffering glorify God, how does suffering glorify God? Four reasons, I believe, are clear in the scriptures. I'm sure there are many more. Number one, suffering glorifies God because it strengthens our faith and increases our holiness. Listen to this scripture out of Hebrews chapter 12. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And that word discipline here in the 12th chapter of Hebrews has in view more than just God chastening you or you know, correcting you. It has in view, especially in the whole context of Hebrews, the difficulty and the trial and the persecution and the suffering that the Hebrew church was undergoing at the hands of the Roman Empire. And Paul, or not the, whoever the writer is of Hebrews, maybe Paul, is making the point here that all of this that you are going through is the discipline of the Lord, and it is proof that God is treating you as a son. Verse 8, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons besides this we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and respected and we respected them shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them but he disciplines us for our good and he disciplines us through even the suffering and the affliction regardless of the genesis or the origin of that suffering he uses it for our good that we may share Listen to this now. So this suffering, this discipline, this trial, whatever it is, is so that, verse 10 there, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all disciplines seem painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. So that what is lame May not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without, no, without which no one will see the Lord. So the first way that suffering serves to glorify God is it does something in us. It produces eternal characteristics in us. James chapter 1, I don't have it on the screen or in my notes, but many of you are familiar with them. I'm sure with that verse that, that the testing of our faith, the trials, temptations, produces in us Patience, virtue, the character of God. The suffering strengthens our faith and increases our holiness. Secondly, and this is so important, it forces us to rely on God and not ourselves. It forces us to rely on God. Suffering it does. It forces us to rely on God and not ourselves. Listen to this verse. If you're zoned out, <laughs> click it in on this one. Second Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8 and 9. This is Paul again writing to the Corinthian church. He says, "For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, and that is my heart. I do not want you to be ignorant. I do not want you to be deluded as we'll read in a couple of weeks in Colossians chapter 2 by plausible arguments of karma or dualism. I want you not to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself." Have you ever been in a place where you just wish you'd die? I have. Have you ever just said, Jesus, if now would be the time that you pulled the curtain and came back, I'd be okay with that. Have you ever just hoped? Have you ever just hoped that it just ended? Well, that's where Paul was. But then he goes on in verse 9, he says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But don't miss this last sentence. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And so is it not clear? Can you not see it there that there is obviously some hand behind the scene there that is providentially bringing that despair to bear on Paul's life? Why? So that he would tank it? Or so that he would not trust in his own strength and look up to heaven, as Psalm 3 says, to the one who is the glory and the lifter of his head. Do you see what this verse is saying? I realize this is weighty and hard. It is saying that God, God is knocking out the props of human self-reliance to bring about a situation in Paul's life And I believe in yours and mine in certain circumstances at various times so that we would not rely on ourselves but on God. That's massive. Number three, the third way that suffering glorifies God. Suffering stirs boldness and faith in others. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 through 14, just one book over from Colossians. We were in it just a moment ago. Paul is in prison now. Okay? It's really important to understand the context here. We're going to talk about how we should handle trial and suffering, how we should pray in it, because I want you to know the backdrop here. Paul had three, maybe four, imprisonments during his ministry. He got thrown in prison numerous times. One time in Acts chapter 16... While he was in the process of planting the church at Philippi, the very church that he now is writing to, he and Silas, uh, Silas broke out their hymnal and started to sing, and God miraculously burst them out of, burst busted them out of prison. But now, several years later, Paul is writing back to the very church that was sprung from the miracle of his miraculous release from prison, and he's writing to them from prison. This time, evidently, because of the providence and sovereignty and knowledge of God, he deemed it best to not break Paul out of prison. And this is what Paul writes to those believers who saw Paul get broken out of their jail cell once before. This time he's in Rome. He says in verse 12 of chapter 1, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, listen to this perspective, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ." And most of the brothers, this gets to the point specifically that we made, that suffering stirs the boldness and faith of others. Verse 14, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Suffering glorifies God because it stirs boldness in the lives of those who see our struggle. A couple weeks ago, we, several of us, several of us, and many other people from the Columbus area were gathered in Otis and Sandy Scarborough's chapel up at their uh, beautiful farm in Pine Mountain, at the Salt of Paul Chapel, and Coach Jeremy Williams, who his family just had that beautiful blessing from Extreme Home Makeover, and they redid their home. And as you know, if you don't know, Coach Williams is suffering from Lou Gehrig's disease. That is, there is no cure for that. It is a desperately debilitating disease. Very likely, unless God intervenes with some miraculous healing, he will, he will go to be with the Lord in a year or two. And they have two children. One of them, I'm not sure of the whole story, but there was some uh, disability there in childbirth. And this family's going through incredible suffering and trial. And very likely this wife is going to be a widow. And these these, these two children are going to be orphans. But you know what? A packed chapel up in Pine Mountain was stirred to faith and boldness by a football coach who loves Jesus, who very likely is going to die. Not because he's prosperous. Because we look at that man whose testimony is Christ. And that to live is to Christ. And to die is gain. And we are stirred by his trial and his suffering far more than we are stirred by comfort and blessing. God is glorified through our suffering or our circumstance or our trial or our sickness. Because when we endure it with the attitude of Paul as he did in Philippians, it stirs the faith and boldness of the church. And people are roused. The sleeping, dead, dying, self-absorbed, consumer-addicted, navel-gazing church is stirred because they see that Christ is real. And God gets glory. The fourth and final way, and I think this is the most important. The fourth and final way that God is suffering, how God is glorified through our suffering is that suffering enables us in a more profound way. Not that you can't do this in other circumstances. Certainly you can. But suffering in a unique way enables us to display the surpassing worth of Jesus over and compared to the things of this world. This is what the Apostle Paul says again in his letter to the Corinthians, his second letter, chapter 4, verse 17. He says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Listen to this, verse 10. We are always carrying in The body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. In other words, we are carrying. Remember, we're just. We're just couriers. We're just messengers of Christ's suffering afflictions on the cross to a world that needs to see a representation of the God who died for them. And he says we are carrying this in our bodies by our trials so that the life of Jesus, the second part of verse 10, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake... So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Skip down to verse 16 of that same chapter. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction. Is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. So, what Paul is saying is that all of my shipwrecks, all of my snake bites, all of my beatings, all of the things that I have taken are showing they're pointing a broken, self absorbed world that is focused only on these 80 years. It is pointing it to the eternal, not just to what is seen. Verse Verse 18, as we look to the things that are seen, but to, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul is saying that when we are suffering, we point people more profoundly to eternity because it is a reminder of the mortality and the fading nature of the things of this earth. Suffering glorifies God because it enables us To display in a unique way. I'm not saying that all of life. Doesn't also help us. Display the surpassing worth of Christ. But in a unique way. Suffering. More than blessing. And actually. Paul's theology I think would bear out that suffering is actually blessing. Suffering helps us to display the surpassing worth of eternity with Christ over and against these eighty years. Now, um, I I know your objection, and I have it rattling around in my brain too. But before I get to that, let me read this quote. This is a beautiful quote. This is from a man named Malcolm Muggeridge, who was a British journalist, author and great thinker in the past century. Was born in beginning 1902, 1903, died around 1990. Uh, I believe he was a Christian. Malcolm Muggeridge says, "Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. In other words, listen, if it were possible... To, if, it, if it were ever possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence by means of some drug or other medical mumbo-jumbo, the result would not be to make life delectable or delightful, but to make it too banal or trivial to be endurable. This, of course, is what the cross of Christ signifies. And it is the cross, more than anything else, that is called me inexorably to Christ. Now, what I was just about to say a little while ago is I can hear someone saying, what's wrong with you? What are you, a masochist? Do you want to suffer? Do you want us to suffer, preacher? No. I don't want to suffer. And I don't want you to suffer either. And I have seen some of you suffer. We will suffer. We will suffer. And when suffering inevitably comes in our life, I believe we need this steel in our spine, this biblical truth, so that we can have the attitude that Paul had in the Roman prison cell writing back to the Philippians so that whether we are well fed or whether we are hungry whether we have everything or whether we have nothing whether we have good health or bad health whether the world around us is crashing we can display the surpassing worth of Christ to a world that is addicted to ease and comfort i don't want to suffer and i don't want you to suffer but i want us to be prepared To glorify Christ when we do. The final question. How then should we pray when we are suffering? This is where it gets fun. Because there is an obvious biblical tension and paradox that we must embrace. I just built a case, I hope successfully and persuasively for you, that suffering in a special and unique way, glorifies God. So you may be saying, well, then if that's the case, then should we not even try to get out from underneath? I mean, if that's so, then why even pray? Let's just be sort of passive, c'est la vie, laissez-faire. I'm just going to take it. I'm just going to be, I'm going to play Muhammad Ali in the corner, rope-a-dope. I'm just going to take every shot that providence has for me. Well, I don't believe that's biblical either. How should we pray when we are suffering? Number one, we should pray earnestly for healing and release from suffering. This is what Paul uh, this is what James says in his epistle, James uh, chapter five, verse thirteen. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord, this is the same Bible, by the way, that we've been reading out of previously. And the one who is sick, the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah, the great prophet of the Old Testament, was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So when we are sick, we should pray. And if you have some illness or some circumstance, don't go underground with it. Don't be so proud that you don't let anybody know. Pray. We should pray. There's so much stuff going on in this room that every time we end the service, we should have this place packed with people wanting to get prayed for. And we should be biblical and anoint you with oil and pray with faith that God will heal you. That God will heal you. And so we should pray earnestly and fervently for God to move. But, and this is our second point of the way we should pray when we're suffering. Listen to me, we should also pray. Knowing that God and this is why it's so beautiful and so rich, so important. We should also pray, knowing that God can be glorified whether we are delivered from suffering or not. Paul writes again in Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verse seven through ten, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations In other words, I was so full of God, I was cranking out letters that later would become Bible. And I mean, I'm just saying, if there's an opportunity for somebody to think they had the juice card, I was the guy. But in order to keep me from becoming too conceited, he says, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. Okay, so for the good ultimate cause of him not becoming too prideful. God providentially uses his errand boy, also called Satan, to work out his good through suffering in Paul's life. Listen to this. A thorn was given to me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan harassed me. So the providential God, for the ultimate good of keeping Paul humble, dispatches this minion called Satan to bring about, through suffering, his ultimate good in Paul's life. <laughs> Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. Paul prayed, righteously and biblically prayed that this thorn, and we're not sure what it is, whatever it is. I don't care if it was a physical thing or an emotional thing or a spiritual thing or a habitual sin. Whatever it was, it was suffering. And Paul, very understandably, just like we should, because we believe James 5 is also in the Bible, he prayed three times, fervently, that God would remove it from him. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But, verse 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So evidently, what can we gather as we put James and Second Corinthians together? That we, like Paul and like James, should pray with earnestness and eagerness and passion and fervor and openness and clarity and faith that God will alleviate our suffering, that he will cure our cancer, that he will move mightily among us. And when he doesn't, we trust in a sovereign God who knows things that we cannot know. That's why in Romans chapter 8, it says that we are sons and daughters of God. And we have the great privilege to cry out to our Father, Abba, Father. But then later on in that passage, it says that the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses because we don't even know how we should pray. We don't pray as we ought to. And so the Spirit comes and intercedes for us on behalf of God. And sometimes as we pray, God heals us miraculously. And we need way more passion for that in this church and sometimes he chooses not to heal us and he through our suffering gets glory in our life like he did through Paul's and whether it's this or that is not for us to determine for us to determine is to go hard after God but stand on the rock solid foundation of his good providence and sovereignty in all things two quick little things and then we'll end Sometimes we hear in the church, and I want to be very delicate and gentle and um, pastoral in this. We hear these phrases where people will say things, and it's a well-meaning phrase. In fact, I've even said things like this before. We'll say things about sickness, or when we somebody, a friend of ours, hears that we're about to enter into some trial or sickness we'll get a bad report from the doctor and the well-meaning friend who loves Jesus will say something along the lines of, oh, I choose not to receive that. I don't claim that. I speak against that. We've all heard that thinking, haven't we? Listen, friends, the heart behind that is the heart that is good. But I think it's a limited view And I think actually the seeds of that line of thinking are born out of the word of faith, health and wealth gospel that took fervor in the 50s and 60s and 70s in America. And although I believe that God tells us in the Bible that our tongue and our confession should be positive, I don't believe that he has limited himself so that by what we confess or don't confess, either comes or does not come to us. Our confession should be one of faith. And we should realize like Job realized in Job chapter 2. When his wife told him after he lost everything, just curse God and die. And he says, wait a minute, woman. We've received blessing from God. Shall we not also receive this? And the word used there is disaster. And so I appreciate the heart of people. They come from that sliver of Christianity, of which I love and I'm a part of, but I think can ultimately be very limited in its view of God's sovereignty and suffering. Nothing that hits us does not first pass through the hands of a sovereign, good, and gracious God. And when it hits us, or before we see it coming on, we have every right to pray that God would remove this or divert this. Or if it does... This situation or this sickness, if it does come upon us, we have every right to be passionate in our pursuit of God that He would heal us because we believe James 5. And we also believe in the common grace of modern medicine and counseling and all sorts of other manners and avenues and streams of healing that God gives. But we also believe that God is sovereign. And sometimes in His good providence, He heals and corrects and alleviates, and sometimes He doesn't. So let's not dice up. Let's not play the game. Should I pray? Shouldn't I pray? Let's always pray. But in our posture of prayer and faith, let's have more faith in the hope of eternity than in the answered prayer. Because if somebody has cancer and we pray for them, that they get healed of cancer, and they get healed, guess what? In another 40 or 50 years, they're still going to die. And so what's our hope then? Is our hope here just in this life? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19 that if if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are to be pitied among all people. So let's pray for the things here and now, but let's pray with an eternal posture that God is sovereign and He works all things for His good, even suffering. what's the difference between Jesus' suffering and ours? Jesus suffered sinlessly, righteously, once for all. Now it's imperfect, very much in process, people who have been saved are in the process of being transformed by Christ, we at times suffer to display the surpassing worth of Christ. If you've been in this room for the past hour and a half, and by the Spirit of God it has become evident to you that you do not know Jesus, this is the good news. First Peter 3:18 says that Christ suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God and put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit Christ ultimately suffered once and for all so that he would remove the justice and wrath of God that was bearing down on our heads because of our rebellion. The Bible is very clear that if you do not repent and believe and trust in what Jesus did once and for all in his suffering, that you and whoever else does not repent and believe will ultimately suffer for an eternity so you're hearing the good news, the gospel. Repent and believe and trust in Jesus' suffering. I beg of you, my friend. I beg of you. You can do that in just a moment. We're going to receive communion. What you do is you repent. You turn from self-reliance. You turn from self-righteousness and the view that Someday you're going to be okay with God because you lived a relatively good life. That is not going to make it. You repent and trust in Jesus by faith. You say, Christ, I don't understand it all, but forgive me my sins. Come now, make me your child. He will be good and faithful to do that. You can do that just as I'm praying here in just a moment, and I invite you to do that. And if you're a Christian and you're struggling with a limited view of how God can interact with your suffering. I encourage you to let this message inspire worship in you. We're going to come around this table and we're going to take little pieces of bread and juice and we're going to remember the suffering of Christ for us and it should cause us to worship. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to receive communion, I pray that my words would hit our hearts like an arrow, not because of my wisdom, but because I pray that what I've said today is based on the truth of the Scriptures. Lord, if there's somebody in this room who, by your Holy Spirit, they're Eyes have been awakened and the veil has been pulled away from their mind that they do not know Jesus. Would you help them right now to just confess, to repent and believe in Jesus? That's all you need to do, friend. You repent and you believe. You trust. You put the weight of your life. You embrace as the treasure of your life, Jesus and his work on the cross and his resurrection for you. The Bible says that when you do that, you will become a Christian, born again believer in Jesus. Father, if there's somebody in this room who hasn't done it, would you right now help them lift up their eyes and embrace Jesus as the treasure of their life. And God, for the Christians, which is probably all of us in here that are struggling with suffering, would you fill us, would you fill us with this robust, beautiful word that you work all things together for the good of your children. Help us now as we receive communion to examine our lives and to lift up our heads and see Jesus. We pray this in his good name. Amen.